Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Really glad you're with us for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Jim Garrity is off today. Uh, he is hopefully not having to take out a second mortgage on the gas prices, which are now over $5 per gallon average. I spent $71 uh, this morning filling up my tank, and I'm not very happy about that. Uh, so when you when it happens on a Monday, it's even worse. But uh, in, in Jim's place today, Andrew C. McCarthy, former federal prosecutor, contributing editor at National Review Online, a Fox News contributor. And uh, just so happens that Andy's here on a day where we've got Supreme Court decisions. Not the huge one that we are expecting uh, at some point and will happen some point this month on Roe v. Wade. And there's a big uh, Second Amendment case out there as well. But we've got two that we're going to talk about in two of our martinis and also uh, talk a little bit about uh, Andy's skepticism about the January 6th commission as uh, as our third martini today. So, Andy, first of all, great to have you with us. Happy Monday. Greg, happy Monday. I, I, I feel your pain over the weekend. I have a Jeep, which I drive around because of my son catches in baseball and he's a hockey player. So we have like goo gobs of equipment and we have to go all over the place for him to play. And I paid I let it get down to the bone. I paid one hundred and seven dollars on Sunday oh. to fill to fill the tank. I mean, I just, I, I, it's shocking. It's unbelievable. And you're in Jersey, right? So uh, you got to pay the people to pump you too, right? You get full serve, mandatory full serve. Right? <laughs> if they're going to charge 107 bucks, they're going to have to handle paying the uh, the guys who do the pumping. You know, I mean, <laughs> uh, charity goes only so far. You know what I'm saying? That's exactly right. <laughs> oh, man. Well, it's painful for everyone, and it's going to be painful for Democrats, I think, in a few months if, if this persists, which it certainly yep. looks like it will. But, Andy, let's get to uh, the Supreme Court, uh, the legal arena, certainly one of your areas of expertise. And uh, the, the first case we're going to talk about is the first decision that was issued today. It was a 6-3 to three decision, not along the usual ideological lines, although it was close. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett with the majority opinion, along with Chief Justice Roberts, Clarence Thomas, Stephen Breyer, uh, Sam Alito, and Brett Kavanaugh, Gorsuch writing the dissent, joined by Sotomayor and Kagan, and it deals with double jeopardy. The case specifically centered on a criminal defendant uh, named Merle, and I think this is right, Denespi. He's a member of the Navajo Nation. He was prosecuted first in a court of Indian offenses, according to SCOTUS blog, and later he was convicted in a federal court, and the SCOTUS has ruled that uh, the second conviction is legitimate. So, Andy, I assume that um, that's a different verdict in the federal court than the Indian court. I don't know, but uh, it certainly suggests that the Supreme Court uh, perhaps looks at uh, courts not part of the federal uh, government uh, as not falling under double jeopardy uh, guidelines here. So how do you read this verdict? Well, this happens to be an issue, Greg, that I had to litigate a number of times as a prosecutor. And what it goes to is something that's known as the dual sovereignty doctrine of double jeopardy. And what that basically holds is if you have two different sovereigns who prosecute crimes arising out of the same incident, even if it's the same crime uh, per se, uh, that is not a violation of double jeopardy because they're different sovereigns and the, the government that brings the case is deemed to be an ingredient of the offense that's brought. So to be a little uh, less lawyerly about it, I hope, the United States, the federal government, and the governments of each of the states 
Uh, and in some states, the, uh, the Native American courts that have jurisdiction in some of the tribal areas are all deemed to be different sovereigns. Like in the United States, we have the federal government is the sovereign, the states are sovereign, their responsibilities are different, but they're both deemed to be sovereign. So the usual uh, example that we give of this is, let's say somebody sells a package of cocaine which is a federal crime and also a crime against the laws of, I think, every state in the United States bars uh, cocaine sales distribution. Um, if, if the state brought a case on that offense, and let's say the guy got acquitted, although it doesn't really matter he gets it, whether it's acquitted or convicted, that's the end of that case. Nothing would stop the federal government the next day from bringing a case on exactly the same incident because uh, they're different sovereigns. So they're allowed to bring the same case. Double jeopardy is only a bar against uh, trying for uh, trying more than once the same crime by the same sovereign. And in the case before the Supreme Court, the problem for the defense was even worse because it wasn't specifically the same crime. So there was an incident that happened that the Native American court authority prosecuted basically as an assault and that the federal government prosecuted as a sexual battery under a federal law that they were allowed to uh, bring. So in this case, it wasn't just that you had two different sovereigns. You didn't even have exactly the same crime, even though it arose out of the same factual transaction. And Justice Barrett, I think, gave a very narrow and faithful uh, understanding of what the je double jeopardy clause protected as it was originally understood at the time the Constitution was ratified. So what I'm hearing, uh, Andy, is that basically nothing's changed. It's been clarified here, and, and you said in a narrow way. So anyone thinking that uh, the government now has more latitude to prosecute you for the same thing is not the case because uh, as long as you know it's state versus federal, or in this case an Indian court versus a federal court, that's always been the case. So it's not like we've somehow lost anything today. Is that is that a good way to read it? Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Greg. And what I would say in terms of um, trends, what you might what you might have seen today is that in a number of states, New York is one, for example, they have a doctrine under their state constitution that's known as equitable double jeopardy. And the idea behind that is, let's say um, you and I rob a bank and we get prosecuted for bank robbery and we get acquitted. If the state the next day, the same, the same sovereign, the next day uh, indicted us for conspiracy to commit bank robbery, and everything else was exactly the same. It was the same bank robbery, the same factual transaction. The only difference is now they, they're mad because we got acquitted on the bank robbery charge. So they want to go after us again, and they figure they'll do it on conspiracy. In New York, you would not be allowed to do that because New York follows equitable double jeopardy, which basically says any crime that arises out of a transaction, you have, you have one opportunity, government, to bring that. Uh, and if people get convicted or acquitted, you don't get a second bite out of the apple. In the federal double jeopardy doctrine, uh, it's very different. They actually would allow the second prosecution uh, after the first prosecution. Now, the, the, the Justice Department has guidelines to try to prevent that from happening in all but a very small 
number of cases. But I think what may have happened here and what may have informed this litigation is there are a lot of people who would like to see, whether it's on the left or, or libertarians, would like to see the federal government hampered the same way a number of these states are. And you can understand why they want to take the position that, you know, it's very hard to litigate against the government. They should only have one opportunity to prosecute you. Yeah, and very expensive. So for all the yep. things New York gets wrong, that might be one that a lot of us yeah, uh, right. who enjoy uh, <laughs> right. personal liberty uh, would, would appreciate and and uh, maybe other states will look at as well. So uh, interesting to see that. Uh, we'll get to another Supreme Court uh, case, actually two of them, in our second martini here in just a moment. But in the meantime, we're sponsored in part today by Bambi. And if you run a small business, do you know who's running your HR Remember that one employee complaint can turn your world upside down and devastate your business. But HR is not just about avoiding risk. As a business leader, you need to do right by the people you employ, and that's why you need Bambi. So what's Bambi? It's an HR platform built for businesses like yours so you can automate the most important HR practices and get your own dedicated HR manager. Remember, an in-house HR manager on your own payroll can cost up to $80,000 a year, and inflation, that might be even more. But with Bambi, your dedicated HR manager starts at just $99 a month. No hidden fees. Cancel anytime. So it's uh, a simple way to take care of the things that you probably didn't think about uh, spending a lot of time on when you started your business, and it'll save you a ton of money. Bambi has received thousands of five-star reviews on Trustpilot, and their customers are four times less likely to have a claim filed against them. You run your business. Let Bambi run your HR. Go to Bambi.com slash martini right now for your free HR audit, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash martini. One more time, Bambi dot com slash martini all right andy on to our other cases today and these deal with immigration um and they deal with bond hearings uh and it seems like a split decision today so i'll let you uh, uh interpret this uh according to scotus blog though who really does a good job of of summarizing these yep. the supreme court clarifies when the government must provide bond hearings to certain non-citizens who are in prolonged immigration detention and are contesting their deportation. SCOTUS is siding with the government here, with Sonia Sotomayor writing the majority opinion. But in another case on bond hearings for non-citizens in immigration detention, the Supreme Court rules that the district court did not have jurisdiction to enter a class-wide injunction. And Sam Alito is writing the majority opinion there. So, Andy, uh, again, sounds like a split decision. What's actually changed here? Well, this traces back, Greg, to... Uh, a case in the 1990s written by Justice Breyer, uh, which was called Zadvidas versus Davis. And the issue there, this was actually quite a hullabaloo at the time, was uh, illegal aliens were claiming that they had a constitutional right to be released on bail. That is, that they could not be subjected to, uh, to detention interminably. Uh, and there's nothing in the Constitution that would require that. Uh, the uh, you know the Constitution does say that uh, you know bail when it's set uh, must be reasonable, but it doesn't say that you have to allow out of custody people who don't have a legal right to be in the country in the first place. Uh, but under uh, Justice Breyer, they cobbled together a progressive majority that invented the new constitutional right of illegal aliens. Uh, to bail hearings after a certain point in time. So what that essentially means, according to the court, is that the Constitution says you can't hold these people interminably. 
Although the court said that there might be some times that you could hold them interminably, depending on, like, for example, was it a terrorism case? Were they, a, you know, a risk that if you released them, they would do great harm to the country, uh, et cetera. So th- this is one of these cases when the, the when the court kind of makes it up where it ends up raising more questions than it answers. And here the question raised is, well, when are they exactly entitled to bail hearings? And what the court basically found today was that whatever the constitutional requirement may be for when you have to give people a hearing, the statute that they were citing as a basis to force the government to give them an immigration hearing did no such thing. Um, So I think probably the reason that the the case looks like such a consensus, especially the one that Justice uh, Sotomayor wrote, which I think only had one dissenting opinion uh, to it, if I'm remembering right. Um, The the reason there was such consensus there is, I think, from the standpoint of the people who are kind of uh, strict constructionists about this stuff, what they basically say is there's nothing in the statute here that says that you get a hearing. And as far as the progressives were concerned, they were able to say, well, there may not be anything in the statute that says that, but we haven't resolved the constitutional issue. So we're going to send everything back for the lower to the lower court where they can start to grapple with that stuff. So I think that's where they came to a consensus. So basically, they've created this hot potato of a right back in the 1990s. Uh, and now they don't really know, you know, quite what the parameters of it are. And they wish that Congress would come in and help them out on that. But so far, they haven't. Exit question on the Supreme Court, Andy. And obviously, as I mentioned earlier, we're we're waiting for other big cases. But a lot of these cases that don't get as much media attention are are critically important too. Uh, given the protests, illegal as they turn out to be, in front of the justices' homes and the uh, attempted murder of Brett Kavanaugh last week, should Chief Justice Roberts be fast tracking the release of this decision, assuming everybody's got their paperwork in? Well, I thought he should at the beginning, Greg. I thought the best thing that could have happened is that the decision get uh, released as soon as they could possibly release it. But now that they haven't, my expectation is they'll probably wait until the end and maybe issue it the day after the uh, after the justices leave town for the summer because of just, you know, how how fraught the situation is right now. I you know, I would say about Justice Ro- uh, Chief Justice Roberts that, um, you know, he is people should understand he's first among equals he doesn't have the capacity to order them to you know finish their work and get an opinion out uh as as when you know when he dictates that it should come out he has a limited uh, amount of uh, authority to administer the court but you know this is probably the most important case the court will resolve maybe in decades and uh he's hard put to tell you know, the various justices who who may want to write opinions in this case and may want to refine opinions in this case, that they have to do it on his time frame. So I just think it's it's kind of like herding cats for him in that sense. He's got he's got less control over things than people think he has. So there's no set schedule. It's just a matter of when the majority and concurring and dissenting opinions all are finished. Yeah. When they're ready to go, they they go. I mean, it's a consensus process. Uh, it, It can't be delayed interminably. And everybody knows that and has to play by a sort of a set of rules that they have to, like, finish their work by uh, X amount of time. But the court is a collegial body, and I think it would probably be counterproductive in the long run for Roberts 
if he tried to put his foot down and said, we will put this out by X date because, you know, he's got a, these guys all have life tenure, you know, they have to work together for, uh, for years and years after this. And I think he tries to avoid doing things that are going to cause hard feelings. Wow. Well, it's a good thing the Supreme Court doesn't operate like college, Andy, because if that was the case, we'd get about 50 opinions on the very last day of the term. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Um, well, we may get that anyway, Greg. I mean, I, I, I'm just saying on, in general, I, had, I would never do that with my college papers, and I know you never would either. So it's just hypothetical. <laughs> um, so just, just spitballing. Yes, I was, I was that uh, – there was a picture in the paper that I see last week that the um, – the Procrastinators Club of America, 1963. There's a picture in a Philadelphia paper of them in 1963 out protesting the War of 1812. <laughs> so uh, I'm I'm with them. <laughs> so you understand where I'm coming from on that. All right, I good. do. Oh, I good. do. Good. Good. All right. Well, uh, there's also another thing in Washington uh, that folks ought to be aware of, and that is. An important uh, bill uh, being sponsored by Senator Amy Klobuchar that uh, could be considered this month. And NetChoice wants to make sure you're aware of it and, and the problem with it. And NetChoice is a part of the sponsorship for the Free Martini Lunch today. As Americans, innovation has always been what makes us different. America's tech industry outpaces the world. We have the most innovative companies that power our economy and way of life. Free market innovation is what makes us number one, and NetChoice wants to keep it that way. But some in Washington want to put big government in charge of America's top innovators, attacking our own in the name of competition while true competitors like Europe and China close the gap. NetChoice believes congressional conservatives must stand for American innovation, not big government, by rejecting progressive antitrust proposals. And they encourage you to tell your senator to oppose Senator Amy Klobuchar's Senate Resolution 2992. Learn more about the fight and send a letter to your representative at netchoice.org slash 2992. This message was brought to you by NetChoice. Did a bad accounting rule lead to the 2008 financial crisis? I'm Bill Walton. On the latest edition of The Bill Walton Show, I'll tackle that question. I'll also share my insights from decades in the private equity world and explain what it takes to be successful. Join John Tamney of Real Clear Markets and me as we break down the memoir of Blackstone's Stephen Schwarzman, Follow The Bill Walton Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, it's on the other side of Capitol Hill, Andy, that uh, we're focusing our final martini, and that's on the House side and the January 6th commission. It was prime time last Thursday night, uh, and they're going to have another one, I think, on the 23rd. And in the meantime, they're going to have some high-profile hearings during daylight hours. Uh, and they were supposed to have one today, and I guess they still are, but the star witness isn't going to be there. That's Bill Stepien, former Trump campaign manager. Uh, his wife's gone into labor, so uh, he's not going to appear on Capitol Hill today, but other people are. Um, and so based on what you've seen and um, and what you expect to happen in this process, Andy, you've basically said this is a uh, little more than a performance, given the fact that there's no ability uh, to cross-examine uh, the witnesses, uh, especially since the panel is completely made up of people who are single-minded on this. So, uh, so what have you seen so far, and what you, what's ultimately going to come of this? Well, I think they're really deserving an important purpose, Greg, because I'm one of these people who thinks there really should be a thoroughgoing investigation of what happened on uh, January 6th and what caused it, what led up to it, uh, and what can we do to try to prevent it from happening again. So I, I think this was an important uh, issue. I also think 
that it's the kind of thing we have Congress for. I was not in favor of having a, uh, as they as they claim, uh, a nonpartisan commission like the 9-11 Commission. I always think that people who laud the 9-11 Commission like that, Greg, probably don't remember much about the <laughs> 9-11 Commission it was pretty and partisan. what a politicized circus it was <laughs> while it was going on. So, you know, they, let me tell you, as uh, young'uns, as someone who was there when it happened, um, that it that it reads better than it played. Let's let's just put it that way. Um, but I, I, you know, I was against a commission like that because I think that this is what we have Congress for, and I don't think that we should be uh, upset about the idea that you know a congressional committee dealing with a controversial issue has very different perspectives and brings them all to bear. The idea in our system, uh, whether it's our court system or Congress, is that these investigative proceedings should be adversarial. The idea is that if we get a clash of views, uh, that sharpens each side's arguments. We get to see uh, what's right and um, what's a stretch, and we get a better understanding of what happened. So to my mind, the way this committee was arranged, uh, it's a select committee, which means under House rules that uh, Speaker Pelosi got to pick all the members. uh, And then she on uh, based on a resolution that her minions wrote, uh, which slid in there that she didn't need to take the Republicans nominations for the five seats they were going to have on what was supposed to be a 13 uh, seat commission. Uh, The resolution only required her to consult with Kevin McCarthy, the uh, the minority leader, not to adopt his views or or accept his nominations. But, you know, there were also there's also two centuries of precedent where the minority gets to pick its members on a committee and Pelosi didn't allow that. So when when she took that despotic position, uh, predictably, the Republicans decided that they were going to boycott the committee um, and and basically delegitimize it or try to delegitimize it in the public eye. And the result is that everybody on the committee is handpicked by Pelosi. And it's not really a bipartisan committee even though Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger are Republicans, because the credential to be on the committee is to be rabidly anti-Trump. So even though they're even though they're nominally bipartisan, as my friend Rich Lowry says, they're monochromatic when it comes to uh, to Trump. So um, I, I think they've disserved the the purpose of getting a credible investigation of what happened on on uh, January 6th, because half the country at least is not going to pay it any mind. They think it's just a, a political exercise. And they're so tunnel vision focused on Trump, they're not uh, looking at all the issues that they should look at. And they're more interested with respect to Trump to tell a story to the public about how horrible he is rather than to do a real investigation where different perspectives would be permitted to to argue out what the committee's main allegations are against Trump. And I say this as someone, I'm not carrying a brief for Trump, but I don't think we want a political narrative about him. We've all seen January 6th with our own eyes. We all watched it on television. Uh, we've all kind of made up our mind about what happened at this event 18 months ago and what, uh, you know, what Trump's role in it was. So I think that, you know, the the Democrats attempt to revive it here is obviously more political 
than any practical need at this point in time uh, to have a proceeding like this. And frankly, I think what they're doing is the impeachment investigation that they failed to do in January of 2021. I mean, they did have an impeachment uh, proceeding, uh, but it was a very shoddy investigation. It was a very poorly written uh, impeachment count. And all of the things that Trump did that I think were actually impeachable were things that they didn't adequately investigate at the time. They're trying to do that now, but I think it's like 18 months too late. Yeah, I think I agree with a lot of the points you made. I think Pelosi nuked the uh, credibility of this committee exactly, as you said, by by refusing to seat the Republicans. The Republicans wanted to put on the panel. And I've seen some people saying, well, you know, the people that he picked, uh, they were just going to blow the whole thing up. And I'm thinking they're in the minority. They're in the House. There's nothing the House minority can ever do to blow anything up. (laughs) You know, Greg, Greg. Imagine when I when I prosecuted the the blind shake back in the 1990s. Yes. If I had gone into court and said, but your honor, he's got Lynn Stewart as his lawyer. She's almost as radical as he is. We can't have a trial. You know, I mean, that's ridiculous. Right. The in this country, whether it's terrorists or mafia guys or, or fraudsters or what have you, we give everyone their day in court. And we don't hide under our chair because big, bad Jim Jordan might come in and have a tirade about, like, why wasn't there enough security at the Capitol? If you have a strong case, you should be inviting an attack or at least a test of it from the other side, because what makes your case strong is the fact that they can't lay a glove on it. If Jim Jordan was on that committee, does anybody think the testimony of, for example, the, the police officers who talked about what it was like to be under siege for hours? Do you think he would have laid a glove on them? And if he didn't, then the committee would have been a much more powerful tool for getting to the truth. So I, I just think they, they, it's a lost opportunity. And they, you know, I think they're trying to cobble together a narrative. They're doing a lot of it for political reasons. But it doesn't mean that we don't need an account of what happened on January 6th. And it should be a trustworthy account. And you wouldn't want to set one up in a way that, that allows not only you know people who are pro-Trump people, but people who just believe in due process and basic fairness to say that this is a political charade. And as a Democratic leader, you might not want to put a bunch of people on the panel who voted to not certify previous presidential elections. So not exactly. Yeah, right. Oh, that. Just tips. Small tips. You don't have to listen to me about this stuff. I mean, it's just details. Andy, always good to have you with us. Thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Greg. Andrew C. McCarthy, former federal prosecutor. He is a contributing editor and columnist at National Review Online, and he is a Fox News contributor. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch if you don't already. Tell your friends about us as well. Thank you so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. And uh, also, you can get us on your home devices. Don't forget that. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us all on Twitter. He's at Andrew C. McCarthy. Jim is at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a good Monday and please join us again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Texas Congressman Brian Babin joins me to discuss the massive caravan heading to our already overwhelmed southern border. I'm Sarah Carter on the latest Sarah Carter Show. Babin explains why President Biden is the best friend of the drug cartels and how his policies are getting lots of Americans killed by fentanyl and other drugs. Don't miss it. Follow The Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.